Hello, and welcome to the Bayside Sermon Series Podcast. I'm your host, Marcus Duckworth, Technical Director at Bayside. Today, we talk with Pastor Dave Ritter about the consequences of blatantly denying the power of God. We also discuss purpose of the church, and when the church doesn't differentiate itself from the culture, what's the need for the church? I hope you enjoy our discussion time today. All right, so today we're talking about Daniel chapter 5. Let's do a quick review to summarize the chapter. Verses 1 through 4, Belshazzar is the the new king that we're talking about this week. Uh, And he throws a defiant party where he basically, it's it's a big drunken party for him and a thousand of his closest friends, wives, concubines. And he breaks out some special party wear that, that belonged in the temple of Jerusalem, using it for unholy purposes, brought some damnation upon himself. Belshazzar sees the handwriting on the wall. This is verses 5 through 16, which makes sense that he would be quite startled by this and has to bring in his wise men again, who fail him uh, yet again until the the wise words of his grandmother uh, say, call it Daniel. Then Daniel declares Belshazzar's guilt, uh, verses 17 through 23. You know, it's good to hear our our history. A lot of times we try to push away the, the history, whether it's good or bad, so we don't try to remember those things, but it's important for us to know the history of our family and our country around us so we can live by the standards that God has put before us. And then we close the chapter by God's judgment falling on Belshazzar. The writing deciphered by Daniel says that he is to lose the kingdom, verses 24 through 30. So Pastor Dave, let's talk about the four observations you made for this passage. Observation one, people who arrogantly defy God seldom see how foolish and ugly their behavior is. When you see the handwriting on the wall, it may be too late for you. If you don't learn from your parents' mistakes, you'll fall even harder than they did. And it's a bad idea to anger the one who holds your life in your hand. So as we get started, uh, in the sermon, you gave a specific date for this party. What was that date and how do you determine that? Well, it was October 12, 539 B.C., and the reason we know that is that that was the night that the Medo-Persian Empire conquered the city of Babylon. And and all the events described um, leading up to that uh, fit within that time frame. Um, And so it's it's pretty clear that that was the exact night it happened. So historians have found a specific marker that dates. uh, I've been told there was a specific lunar eclipse, I believe, that there, there gives a specific date that, that we understand uh, as a, a good anchoring point for building off of. Yeah, the whole, uh, the calendar system uh, basically was a lunar calendar. So yeah, uh, we, we have uh, pretty, pretty accurate ways, uh, specifically when ancient literature, and we have, you know, from Babylonian records uh, as well, the, the, the recorded history of how and when uh, Babylon fell. And uh, yeah, we're able to nail the date pretty precisely. 
And so that date helps us also to pinpoint how old Daniel is in this time. Because it's very difficult. We, we, this is only chapter 5. We've gone from Daniel being a, a teenager, being pulled out of Jerusalem, and he's gone through young adult years, and now we're, we're, we're a different king. This is multiple generations away from Nebuchadnezzar. And it helps us to understand that he's a wise old man, and at the towards the end of his life, towards the end of his duties to the uh, king, so that that helps to to build this idea that he he's not a young pup in this anymore. No, we we know that Daniel was taken uh, captive to Babylon in one of the first Babylonian um, captivities. So there were several waves of captives taken away, and Daniel was in the first one. Uh, so that would put him at a, if, assuming that he was a teenager when he was taken to Babylon, uh, he's probably been in Babylon a good 60 plus years, uh, which would put him around the age of 80. Yeah. And then this also helps to, to define when the queen that we would believe to be the queen mother because of other, other things in the text reminding him of Nebuchadnezzar's days. Yeah. After, after Nebuchadnezzar, uh, passed away. Uh, he had reigned for 42 years, and then there was kind of some power grabs and some palace intrigue and infighting within the family. Uh, it took uh, three failed attempts for somebody to claim the throne before Nabonidus finally emerged as the, the next uh, strong king of Babylon. He reigned about 17 years. Um, so Nabonidus, Nabonidus was hardly ever home. He was always off doing battle somewhere, and he had another palace and another part of the, the empire he enjoyed much more. So he was rarely home in Babylon, and that's why uh, Belshazzar, his son, was appointed co-regent, so kind of a um, second-tier king, uh, virtually equal with Nabonidus, but Nabonidus was number one. Belshazzar would have been number two but it would have been regarded as the king over Babylon, uh, the, the fortress city of Babylon. So you noted in the sermon that this is the third occurrence written in Daniel where the wise man couldn't explain to the king what was happening, whether in the dreams or now in this vision. And then I add this is like the third time that Daniel had to be summoned because he wasn't with the rest of them. So if he was the, the chief of all the wise men, as the queen says he was, where was he? Why wasn't he you know, pulled in at the same time? Well, Nebuchadnezzar had made uh, Daniel chief of the wise men after the second dream that the other wise men couldn't interpret. Um, and so Daniel probably held that position uh, for quite a long time until the end of Nebuchadnezzar's reign. But as with every new administration, kings like to tend to bring in their own people. So it's likely that Daniel was now being overlooked or had been retired, uh, just being ignored by Belshazzar. And that's why um, the queen mother has to remind uh, Belshazzar that, hey, you know, when you're, your father, and he, when he says, when she says your father, he's really talking probably about his grandfather or great-grandfather. Um, but when, when Nebuchadnezzar ran into these situations, he could always rely on Daniel. Uh, you, ought to, you ought to ask him to come and help out. So Daniel may not actually have any official court responsibilities at this point. Um, he, he just might be kind of living in obscurity at the moment, but the queen remembers him and, and encourages Belshazzar to bring him in. 
The promised reward Belshazzar had for whoever could interpret it was to be third in the kingdom. Is that counting Belshazzar's father as first, then Belshazzar is two, and then Daniel is three? That's correct. That's why he would be third, promised the third position in the kingdom. Which, given what was about to happen, Belshazzar wasn't exactly a, a very uh, attractive prospect. Um, and, and so it's understandable why Daniel would turn it down. I think Daniel turned it down for two reasons. One is he was he's promising uh, a great wealth. Uh, you know, dress him in purple, you know, give him a, a gold necklace. Uh, so those are indications of royalty and wealth. And then you'll be third in the kingdom. Well, you know, Daniel's not impressed with uh, financial gain. Um, he's he's working at God's bidding, and he certainly doesn't want to be closely identified with Belshazzar's administration because it's about to come to an end, and Daniel knows that. And we'll talk more about some of that outcome as as we close the the podcast. Let's get to the uh, history lesson that Daniel explains. In verse twenty five, there's three words: Mene, Tekel, and Parson. Then in verse twenty eight, it's Perez. So what, why is the change there? Is, it, is there a difference in the word? No, it's the same root word. It's just a different um, uh, usage of it in terms of the probably the verb declension or, or whatever. Um, but the three words basically mean, uh, mene means to count. That's repeated twice. So count, count. Tekel means to weigh. And uh, parson or paris means to divide or to separate. Uh, so those three words... Four words, actually. Mene, mene, teka, ufarsin. Would have been kind of puzzling, I think, to the wise men. Uh, it'd be kind of a riddle. Somebody wrote on a wall, uh, count, count, way, divide. You know, you, without context, you wouldn't have any idea what that meant. Right. Um, so it's not, it's not surprising that the wise men didn't know what to make of it. But Daniel sure understood because I, I think God was giving him the inside scoop. And that leads me to an, just a stray thought that came into mind as I was preparing. How long do you think these words lasted on the wall? It's not written, but do you think that there's enough room in, in interpretation that by the time Daniel got to the party that the, the writing had disappeared and that God shared this with him? Or do you think that the words lasted for a while on the wall? Yeah, nobody knows, of course, because the text doesn't say, but uh, there's no reason in the text to think that the words disappeared. Uh, I don't think it was like, uh, you know, disappearing ink or something like that. It, um, my guess is that if God wrote them, he wrote them to stay, uh, you know, kind of like graffiti, that they were just there. And uh, so they're probably still visible when Daniel came in the room. Okay. Before Daniel gave the interpretation uh, that he told Belshazzar to keep the reward for himself, and we kind of talked about this a little bit because he, again, he, Daniel wasn't worried about the wealth or position, but we see in verse 29 that the king gave it to him anyway. Do you think Daniel changed his mind about this, or this was just, you know, being a good sport about it, and do you think it influenced how Darius saw Daniel? That's hard to say. Um, you know, I, I think the implication is that uh, Belshazzar could give them all he wanted to Daniel. It didn't mean that Daniel was going to take them or take them seriously or take them home. Um, certainly not take the title. My guess is that, uh, you know, 
Daniel is going to rise very quickly in Darius' administration in chapter 6 and become a valued um, member of, of Darius' court. Uh, and my guess is that he came to attention because it likely was being, Darius was likely hearing the story of what went on in that banquet hall that night, um, you know, as, as different guests were captured and interrogated. Uh, who knows, maybe Belshazzar himself spelled the beans because, uh, you know, he was captured that night before he was executed. Um, any number of ways that story could have been told such that it got back to Darius. Um, you know, hey, there's this guy who was, uh, who was uh, kind of an insider and he was on our side. So you might want to get to know him, uh, this Hebrew. And, um, and, I, and I'm guessing that Daniel came to Darius' attention because of that story getting passed around. As we're talking about the things that happened in that banquet and, and um, you know, Daniel's interaction with the king, and I'm thinking... All of this is taking place in front of a thousand people. Mm -hmm. So they're seeing this writing on the wall. Right. They're seeing what's going on between the king and, and Daniel. It's, you know, like playing like a, a little play in my head. Like, yeah. wow, if you were in that room, what would you, what would you as a guest be thinking about what was going on? And, and was the king concerned about that at the time? Yeah, I mean, it, it talks about how the king lost his color and his knees began to shake. I mean, he obviously almost went limp with fear yeah. uh, when he saw it. And, and the guests had to see that. Yeah. So I'm, I'm guessing there were a lot of scared people in the room. Yeah. Um, maybe a lot of them, you know, kind of uh, beat it out the door. Yeah. At and that seeing point. that their own people or their, their mm -hmm. own wise men don't know what's going right. on. But here's Daniel again after how many years? Exactly. Have they not seen him? Yeah. Putting the pieces together. Yeah, it's kind of it's kind of interesting, you know, because one of the things we haven't talked about yet is that all this is going on while there's a foreign army outside the gates, and Belshazzar is so cocksure of himself that uh, he's he's not going to get conquered. That in, instead of you know paying attention to what the Persians are doing outside the gates of Babylon, he's throwing a party for a thousand guests, and and. Uh, and then on top of that, bringing out the vessels of the temple so that he's not only defying the Persians, he's defying the God of Israel, uh, which is kind of really a dumb thing to do. Uh, but yeah, I, I like your observation, Leslie. I think it's uh, really amazing to think about how this is getting played out in front of a thousand people. Yeah. All right, let's do some practical application to those observations and uh, con contrast them against the character of Daniel. So the first observation, people who arrogantly defy God seldom see how foolish and ugly their behavior is. Uh, during the sermon, you, you brought up some images of a church that was a, uh, was that a United Methodist Church. United Methodist Church. A part of their liturgy is usually having a youth moment, a, a children's, children's church sermon. Mm -hmm. in the middle of the service. Mm -hmm. So this wasn't something that was hidden from the parents. This was something that was done right in front of everybody, uh, that this guest speaker, the man in drag named Pentecost, Ms. Pentecost, Ms. Pentecost uh, play on the words of Pentecost, to, to teach the children a lesson. And, and while 
from from our side, it, it's very easy to see how foolish that is and how ugly that is. There, there seems to be some professing Christians who are blind to that. It, it's not something that they see as foolish. Yeah, you know, and it, it kind of goes to the the direction that some of these mainline denominations are going these days, where, you know, for generations now, um, they've downplayed the authority of Scripture, they have talked about, um, you know, um, how Jesus was a good moral teacher, uh, and there are all kinds of ways that, that the Scriptures have been uh, downplayed and the Gospel has been watered down. Uh, so this is this is nothing new um, in in respect of um, you know people not taking scripture seriously, but it's so indicative of some of the currents in the modern church where you know in a, I don't know if it's an attempt to seem relevant or whatever it is uh, they get on board with whatever is the hot trend and uh, you know flavor of the month. Uh, at that particular church happened to be, uh, you know, drag queens. And, we, uh, you know, inviting a drag queen in, who is, by the way, a candidate for ordination in the United Methodist Church, and having him address the children and, and then give the sermon to the congregation, that that somehow was a beautiful and good thing because it was showing how accepting and tolerant the congregation is, I guess. So they're seeing this as a beautiful thing, all the while ignoring, you know, teachings of scripture that talk about how men ought not to dress as women. And, and, uh, uh, you know, it's, it's, it's just, it's just sad, uh, that, that you have things like that being celebrated by people who think this is, this is all well and good. And we're going to broadcast it around the world. That this is what we're doing. When in truth, it's a desecration of, of, you know, what's holy and good and, and a mockery of the very gospel that, that they're purporting to preach. So, you know, that might sound judgmental on my part uh, to, to talk about it in those terms. But my purpose in bringing it up was to say, you know, look, um, we sometimes are blind to how we declare things holy that God says are unholy. And then we bring them into church and, and act as if this is all great and good uh all the while what's god really think of it right uh and and that's the thing we need to be careful of because uh you know clearly in the case of belshazzar god was not pleased that that the holy temples of the vessel were being used in a drunken party and um, to me it just seemed like this was one example of a sort of modern day equivalent of of sort of calling holy what's unholy and celebrating it instead of uh, you know, living in the fear of God. Very often we're, we're found that we celebrate this ugliness, whether if it is in sexual immoralities or the drunkenness or whatever the vice is. It's, and that's, that's, that's what Instagram is. That's, that's the whole point of this whole social media format is to boast about whatever you're doing in the moment. And usually it's not something uh, godly. Yeah, we're we're cool, we're current, uh, you, you know. Uh, and, but a lot, you're right. A lot of times, the things that are being celebrated are things that that are displeasing in the eyes of God, and and um, that's what we ought to be concerned about. So let's see how Daniel is described. 
the queen says that he is a man in whom is the spirit of the holy gods, which is, as to her terminology, how, how she would understand it. it yeah. In the days of your father, light and understanding and wisdom, like the wisdom of the gods, were found in him. And so his character is linked to how people see God. And it's the same for us, that the way people see our character is ultimately linked to God. And so when we seem hateful or, or bigotous uh, towards anyone, they, they think that's the God we worship because, you know, we follow him. Yeah, you know, um, there, there's always... There's always the, the in, in Daniel, uh, you, you hear God referred to as the God most high. So the pagans are not going to say the same things about God that we might say. Um, you, you know, they, uh, Daniel would have said that, well, no, he's the only God, you know. Um, and, and here she's saying, well, you know, he's got like the spirit of the gods in him. Well, Daniel would say, well, no, I've got the spirit of the Lord God. Um so you know how how pagans describe it in terms of their their um, polytheistic view, their view of of uh, world in which they entertain that there are many gods. So she's she's kind of putting it in words that she can best muster to make sense of you know the ability that Daniel has. But but we know of course clearly that that where Daniel's getting his wisdom from is from the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Yeah. You know, that's that's clear throughout the text of Daniel. And it's important for those that are new to Christianity to, as they're coming through that, that the church is there to help teach them, not in condemning them, but bring alongside, help you understand what God says and how we relate to him and to each other. Uh, and, you know, we, we unlearn those things of the world. Diane and I were talking about the, the message on Sunday afternoon, and she said, you know, to me it was just a good reminder of of the holiness of God. You know, that God is not to be trifled with. And, and you know, we don't probably often enough talk of God in those terms because our culture uh, much prefers of thinking of God as, as loving and accepting and tolerant of everybody and never judging. You know, so we've got a God we've made in our own image, but that's not the God of the Bible. The God of the Bible is a God that is holy and righteous and good and uh, and just and just and and he is offended by evil and he will judge evil. And if we don't reckon with that part of God, then we're missing we're missing out a big part of who God actually is. Yeah. It's interesting you had brought up how um, the uh, the church that had the speaker there in Roman. Their membership is declining over a period of, yeah. of time. Yet they think they're making themselves more appealing to the general public because they're becoming more tolerant. Um, they're not, they've watered down the Bible to make it easier for people to accept. But it's not the Bible. It's not what God wants us to hear. It's not what he wants us to live by. So you're already seeing you know, a, a consequence of, of what that is, of their behavior. But you look at, at us in general in America, and everything is about tolerance and not offending people, and but there's no accountability. Right. 
stop. Yeah, and that's and that's uh, a really good point. Uh, so a lot of these denominations uh, that are kind of going with the social currents and and adding their blessing to things that you know a hundred years ago people of their own denomination would have thought abhorrent. Uh, but now we're, now we're accepting same-sex marriage, we're accepting transgender confusion, we're accepting drag queens in the pulpit, and where is it going to end? And yeah, those, those denominations are all in decline. Um, you know, so much so that one of the denominations I was talking about on Sunday is predicting that they may go out of business by 2041. Uh, and and the, point, the point I made on Sunday, I think, is, is an important one, and that is, look, if the church is saying the exact same thing as the culture, who needs the church? And, and so that's why people are abandoning the main mainline denominations in droves because um, they're, they're not saying anything distinctive, anything that people actually need. They can get those same viewpoints from, from uh, The View or, or any number of uh, entertainment sources or from TikTok or, uh, you know, whatever entertains them these days. Um, if, if, the, if the church is saying the same thing as the culture, then who needs the church? So, you know, the, part of the challenge we have uh, as, as a Bible-believing church is that we're going to find sometimes that we're going to say things that are uncomfortable to people or even outright will anger people um, because we're not saying what the culture says. We're saying uh, what the Bible says and trying to stand firm on that. And I think what you're going to find is that where churches around the country are growing, it's because people are taking a strong they're, they're Christ-centered churches are taking a strong stand on, on the teaching of Scripture and, and not compromising. I think the people that feel like they're lost in the wishy-washiness of these other churches are going to look for the stability of, of good Bible-teaching churches. Yeah. And, yeah. And grow from that. I think that's true. We need that. Yep. All right. Second observation. When you see the handwriting on the wall, it may be too late for you. You reminded us that that is the key phrase that we, we use all the time. You gave an example of, well, after this loss, the writing's on the wall for that manager. He's probably going to get fired. So that, that phrase can be applied to your work. We see that applied to marriages when there's infidelity or there's just certain things that the couples can't get over. And we see it when we go in for testing our health, you know, whether if it's whatever health issues that we're having that the doctor, if we have a good doctor who's going to be honest with us, he's going to say, okay, well, the writing's right here on the wall for you that, you know, you need to make these changes or else. Uh, and so the, that, that's just a, a really good application for everything. But for Daniel, to, to contrast those things, Daniel relied on the sovereignty of God and the gift that, that God gave him in wisdom to read the writing on the on the wall several times in his own life through all those different changes in in the kings uh, and the challenges that he faced with people against him trying to to get him killed or 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 out of power he saw those things through God's wisdom and he trusted the sovereignty of God uh, to take care of him during those times and i think the other thing to point out is that Unlike Nebuchadnezzar, who uh, God warned, and then God disciplined, and then Nebuchadnezzar came to his senses and acknowledged the sovereignty and the supremacy of, of the God of Israel, uh, Belshazzar doesn't get a warning. He, he just gets a pronouncement of judgment. Mm -hmm. 
so that's that's the point of when sometimes when you see the handwriting on the wall, it's too late. Yeah. It means it's over. And and that's what it meant for Belshazzar. Uh, the handwriting on the wall was going to say, hey, you better shape up. Right. But it was to say you've been you've been counted, you've been measured, you've been found wanting. There's some common sense that you're missing. Yeah, more than common sense. It was it was like a sort of a uh, an arrogant defiance of all things holy. You know, um, uh, you know. I think the last trough. I mean, you, you look at Belshazzar. I mean, how much common sense did he have throwing a party with the Persians sitting outside his gates? Uh, so there's a certain level of of lack of common sense, but then you, you get to the point of outright arrogant defiance of taking holy vessels of the temple from Jerusalem and using them in a drunken party. And I think that was, that was it. Yeah. <laughs> that's, that's where God said enough. Right. Cause the text says he knew that what they were, he, well, he, knew he what said, they were. call yeah. them, you know, bring out the vessels from, yeah. from Jerusalem. So he, he made that conscious decision. It, this was an outright, uh, overt sin, right? Yeah. I mean, it was out in the open. Uh, he he knew what he was doing, yeah. and um, thought he could get away with it, you know. And I think I think that's that's a picture of a lot of our culture today. Uh, people just living outright defiant lives uh, where God is concerned, and thinking that they'll they'll get away with it. Yeah. All right. The next observation: If you don't learn from your parents' mistakes, you'll fall even harder than they did. Many of us, we grow up thinking that how much smarter we are than our parents. I mean, I've uh, I've raised two children. You you Dave, you've got three, yeah, adult children. Leslie, how many adults? Three adults. Three children. adult children, and so I'm sure that they still think that they're smarter than us in some ways. And eventually, maybe someday, though, they do wake up and go, "Huh, my parents were smart about those things." Uh, you get any specific examples that you hope that your kids see, or that you have from your parents? I, I know a guy. This is not necessarily from my particular family, but I know a guy who was very vocal about how how sort of clueless his dad was, and um, and was very vocal about how I'll never be like him. And of everybody in his family, guess which of the kids turned out most like his dad. Mm. And, and that's kind of the, the issue with Belshazzar is that Belshazzar had the example of his grandfather. His grandfather was an arrogant guy uh, who went through a really humbling experience and came out the other side. Uh, a much uh, humbler man who was uh, more, much more inclined to give credit to God. Right. Uh, for the blessings in his life. Um, Belshazzar saw that. He should have learned from it, but he didn't. And he, he went down the same arrogant path as his grandfather, only worse. And so, uh, yeah, where Nebuchadnezzar ended up, you know, uh, uh, out, out in the field acting like an ox for a period of time, Belshazzar just flat out left his, lost his kingdom. He, he fell much harder than his grandfather did. Uh, you know, there's kind of a a sense of the sins of the fathers are repeated to the third and fourth generation, and and I think we've all kind of witnessed some families like this where it seems like not only were the sins repeated, but they were even worse right. with each succeeding generation. And I think that's what you have with Belshazzar, is is you have uh, you know Nebuchadnezzar's 
arrogance but on steroids mm -hmm. and so god brings brings the hammer down yeah um, and daniel uh in this case is doing a very good job he's learned not to make the same mistakes his ancestors had not since king david had a jewish later a jewish leader remained this committed to to god you know solomon he he worshiped other gods he married foreign women who led him astray and every king afterwards in in the jewish history between david and, and daniel seemed to have this lack of commitment to god you had some uh, exceptions like josiah along the way where where there were moments of revival and and um returning to the ways of their father david you know and, and they're always described that but yeah the general progression throughout the history of certainly through the whole history of israel and and then through the southern kingdom of judah was predominantly one of each next generation worse than the one before leading then to the capture of samaria in the north and the destruction of jerusalem in the south and uh and their exiles so yeah daniel um Daniel comes off as a as a really kind of unique character in that respect. You're right that that um, especially in the exilic period, uh, he he really stands out as the sterling example of what a follower of Yahweh should be. Every week here at Bayside, I see many grandparents bringing their their grandchildren to church, and uh, I've seen in the past. My my daughter goes to a private Christian school. And I understand grandparents are heavily involved in paying tuition and doing these things to help these kids get a good Christian background and, and solid biblical teaching. And I can't help but wonder if that it's because the, the grandparents realized that either the parents are even falling away or they, they feel that they've not done enough to, to give their children the, the Bible background that they need. So they want to make sure that their grandchildren have that, that good footing. And the, the Israelites faced this. You know, the, they were one generation always. You know, they, they always seemed to, to fall apart. Uh, like you said, what the, in the northern kingdoms, the, the, the next generation was worse than the other. But from the, the time they gave, they gave the law, the, from one generation down, that's why we have Deuteronomy, the second giving of the law, is because that generation had, had stepped that far away from God in the in the 40 years of having to wander the desert that there's always this idea from from our elders in our families that you know we need to help our kids be better and closer to god than what we were because there's always that you know it could be the next generation where our, our christian faith just disappears yeah i mean there's um there's that saying that the Christian faith is one generation away from extinction because it depends on each new generation to um, to to have you know some of that generation follow Jesus. I you know I guess I'm a little more optimistic than that because Jesus said I will build my church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it, and I and I think that um, yeah there's a lot of a lot of decline in our culture and. And people wring their hands about, you know, um, this this new generation. They're falling away from church and not coming back. Well, they said the same thing about my generation, you know, and they probably said the same thing about my my parents' generation. Uh, but there's, I think, there's always going to be a remnant. There's always going to be those who choose to follow Jesus, 
it's likely to get increasingly difficult uh, for each succeeding generation in our culture uh, that has turned so starkly against uh, the ways of God and, you know, essentially is doing what Belshazzar did, thumb, thumbing our nose at God and saying, you know, we don't need God. We, we, we know better than, than the church or the Bible, all that old stuff. Uh, and, you know, what we're, what we're doing in our culture is proving how nonsensical that is. Uh, just just look at the wreckage yeah. <laughs> around us of, of families. And um, so if, if uh, there are a lot of grandparents stepping in and trying to uh, have an influence in the lives of grandkids, my hat's off to them because yeah. they're, they're probably seeing, uh, you know, something in my kids that is missing. And, and if I don't step in and, and fill that gap, then my grandchildren may not know Jesus. Right. Uh, so, yeah, it's, it's a sad commentary perhaps, but um, blessings on those grandparents that, that choose to take Sometimes on the challenge. It's those grandchildren that bring their parents around. That's right. You know, yeah. We can't lose hope on that. That's right. And our fourth observation, uh, it's a bad idea to anger the one who holds your life in his hand. And and not to make God sound like he's holding a magnifying glass over an anthill, but he he is he holds the whole world together. And you know, when we blatantly, you know, dismiss him, then we open ourselves up to a world of hurt. Uh, a huge part of God's character you can be can be found and the simplest children's song, how loving and patient he must be because he's still working on me. That in itself just, just tells me he loves me, he knows what's best for me, and he's still working you know, on me, my heart, uh, to be more like him. How old do you believe Belshazzar was uh, when, when this happened? Uh, I, my guess is that he was probably in his thirties or forties. So pretty young, pretty, pretty, yeah, you know, middle adult, bra- brazen. He, um, his father Nabonidus uh, ruled for seventeen years, and uh, I don't think Belshazzar was in on all of that. He probably was made co-regent five or so years in, um, but yeah, he he was, you know, he was a he was old enough to know better. Yeah, <laughs> put it that way. I was just thinking. Yeah. Yeah, I just love the play on words that's in in verses twenty three and twenty four, where he says, uh, "You know, the God who hold, in whose hand is your breath mm-hmm. has sent this hand mm-hmm. to write your judgment on the wall." Um, yeah, yeah, and the, and the basic idea is like God's not going to tolerate arrogant defiance. You know, yeah. God is patient and He's forgiving, but His patience has a limit, and and He will judge those who are arrogantly defiant toward him. And then in Daniel, he has consistently spoken with boldness to all these powerful kings about the one true God. That that remains just a part of his character that, that we could really take away from this and understand that no matter what situation that we're put into, whoever we are put in front of, that we need to speak with boldness the truth of what God has for us. Yeah, that's going to play heavily into chapter 6, where uh, that's exactly what gets Daniel into trouble, is that everybody, everybody knows that if if you're going to hang any accusation on Daniel, it's going to have to be something to do with his God. 
because he's utterly devoted to that God. And um, so stay tuned for next week about that. One of the things that the Queen said was that Daniel was placed as chief of all uh, magicians, the enchanters, the, the Chaldeans, and the astrologers. So what influence did Daniel have over them in, in his time of leadership? Well, we, we don't know for sure. I mean, um, this was a kind of a, a, a loose coalition of people with different disciplines. All those different groups that you mentioned kind of had different angles on, on what advice they could bring to the king based on reading the stars or this or that or the other thing. Uh, Daniel obviously relied on on uh, wisdom that he got directly from God. Um, one thing that it's believed that the the Magi from the, the Christmas story come from this part of the world, and they're part of a, a sect, a tribe within the Medo-Persian Empire uh, called the Magi. And, um, and Daniel being called the chief of the Magi is interesting because it means that they would have rubbed shoulders with him enough to know uh, that he was devoted to the God of Israel, Yahweh. And it's likely that through Daniel that they became exposed to the Hebrew scriptures. And that's how, years later, they would have known to look for that star in the east. Because in Numbers it talks about a star rising out of Jacob um, that was that was to announce the, uh, the Messiah. And... and um, it was probably Daniel's influence and and uh, Daniel exposing the Magi to the Hebrew Scriptures because the, the the Magi were were just learned men who studied all kinds of things. You know, they 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 just loved to delve into uh, you know ancient writings and, and astronomy and mathematics and all kinds of things, history. So they they were learned men and and uh, some of them would have probably paid enough attention to the Hebrew Bible to say. Hey, look! Uh, there, there is a star in the direction of of Israel, Jacob. Uh, what does that portend? Uh, so, yeah, there's a, there's a little connection with the Christmas story. And another tie-in with the, with Jesus is that the favorite name that Jesus has for himself comes from Daniel, uh, the Son of Man. That that was just a name that Jesus called himself all the time, and that was that's a direct quote from Daniel. Yes, yeah, in the later chapters of Daniel, the more prophetic uh, parts of Daniel, where he's uh, he's called the Son of Man uh, uh, frequently, and yeah, you're right. That's where that's where uh, that title typically is is derived from. All right. Well, thank you very much for your time, Pastor Dave. Thank you very much, Leslie, for joining us today, and that's going to end it for this week. Thank you very much. Thank you. Thank you for joining us today on the Bayside Sermon Series podcast. Next week, we end our series in Daniel and prepare ourselves for the Advent season. Thank you so much for joining in on the discussion time today. Have a blessed week.